Imagine you picked up the most important book in the world, a book with words that can transform hearts. Now, imagine it was full of highlights and notes in the margin, and you could see how this book has transformed someone's heart. This is the Notable Podcast. These are discussions of twin pastors who share their underlining and highlighting with you. This is Season 8, a podcast on Genesis 12 through 25 and the life of Abraham. Uh, Jonathan, this is, um, as we, as we get started on the notable podcast here, I would have to say that, that of all the stories that, that we've covered so far here in Genesis 12 to 25, this is probably the most notable of them. (laughs) If we could say it that way, like of all the stories, I think I've got the most notes in the margin in my heart and in my bible and i think it's for good reason the scholars actually say about genesis 22 um, and we're going to take verses 1 to 14 that's all we're going to be able to cover that this is quote the peak of ancient narrative (laughs) that's what robert alter says the peak of ancient narrative in other words not just the peak of biblical narrative. I mean, this is this is the this is um, would have won uh, the Nobel Prize of literature um, of all of ancient li- literature. Like this is this is it. This is this is the height of the heights. I mean, Jonathan, come on! Like this is a huge story not only in terms of its beauty and power, but theologically as well. I'm excited to get into this podcast today. Are you? Uh, Yeah. Anytime you enter into a story that um, has a one-word title, (laughs) um, people call this the Akedah. So one-word title. Uh, that refers to the Hebrew word that is central in the narrative, uh, means binding. So this is the, the Akedah. And anytime you run into a story like that, you know that um, you've come into something incredibly holy. I, I, wouldn't, I guess I wouldn't say that my, uh, I'm excited to cover it as much as I am humbled i'm really my that's where i'm at like um it's i the scholars are very right like um somebody as as vaunted as like eric auerbach um who wrote um a very important um comparison of of ancient literature and and showed that this is the, the the very peak um is is right but as I enter into this story, um, there's a, for me, it's such a deeply spiritual experience that I think I even have trouble bringing language to all of it. And I think that's probably the point. I, I think it, it, it probably is. There's, um, this is something that we, um, 
we we want to do more of evoking today than explaining and i think it's right to do that the the artists even the artists have caught in the story over the ages um this used to be i i don't think it's true anymore today and that 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 might say more about our culture today uh than anything else but it, it used to be that this was one of the favorite biblical stories to interpret for um, artists. One of them caught my attention by uh, Caravaggio and an Italian painter, medieval. And um, he, he, he paints really this haunting scene of the Akada, the binding. And um, the, the, the lighting of the scene really helps tell the whole story. And I, I can just tell you how my eyes tracked it. The first thing that I saw as I looked at the painting was Isaac. And his 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 eyes are like the eyes of an animal who's who knows it's about to die, like just filled with terror, extreme terror. Um, he is scared beyond belief. And his father's got a knife that's about to um, cut the jugular. And it is stunning to look at his, just the face. That's really what the, the artists wanna capture this, this moment. Next, my eyes moved to Abraham. And Abraham, at least in, in Caravaggio's vision of the scene, He's just sort of stone faced, but you can see the rings around his eyes. Like what I see is resolution in them. And also this deep, deep sadness that he has to do it. And an artist, you know, this is this is a mountaintop um, opportunity for them to try to catch uh, everything that Moses um, really does in the scene, because Moses is very sensational, like he. He, he becomes a, a biblical cinematographer, if you will. And um, unlike so much Old Testament narrative, he really zooms in on that moment, like the, the very moment he lifts the knife, everything is in slow motion and also up close with the, with the biblical camera, if, you, if we want to use that metaphor. And everybody um, wants to try to see that moment. And I think... I think the Holy Spirit wants us to see that moment too. The artists just kind of revel in it, but the theologians um, struggle with it. They they want to make um, meaning out of it, all the way from Augustine to Luther to, to Kierkegaard. We'll talk about them. What what are we supposed to do with a story like this? That's kind of the big question. What does it mean? You know, what does it mean? So I want to I want to build on what you're saying, but before I do that, I want to read just part of it here um, and bring us up to um, the point where you got us, Timothy. And then I want to make a couple comments and build on what you said. So this is Genesis chapter 22. Uh, I'm not going to cover all the details right now, maybe point out a couple as I go and then build out some commentary. Uh, sometime later, God tested Abraham. We'll talk about that later in the podcast. He said, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Um, here's one note. We get three here I am's here in this text. Uh, Abraham is very willing. We find that out right here. Uh, he says, here I am to God. 
um, right here. Um, he then says, here, here am I to his son Isaac. When, when Isaac asks, you know, where's, where's the sacrifice? Here I am. Um, it doesn't actually make it into the English very well, but it's the same thing. Uh, and, then you, and then you have him um, saying to the angel, uh, here I am. So this is, Abraham is presented and, and is a willing, uh, faithful man. And so just pointing that out here, um, that triplicate there. Then God said to him, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. This is, this right away is meant to be evocative. This is meant to be very, very evocative. Um, and a bookend, and, and Timothy, I know you had some writing on that, and I, I thought I should interrupt the reading and let you talk about that for a second. The, all the scholars noticed this. Well, right, like, it, it, this is, it, I think a bookend is, is, is the right way to put it. It, it evokes Genesis 12, where, where God says in, in triplicate form, let me just page open to it real quick um go from your country your people and your father's household to the land i will show you and so right there abraham is called to leave behind his past and and to move into an unknown future and and here the reverse is taking place um we're going to see how much abraham has grown in his faith since genesis chapter 12 and now he is being called to go to Mount Moriah. And we'll talk about that later. That is a significant geographical um, naming that takes place. And he's told to give up his whole future. And we'll, we'll talk. We'll, we got to unpack. Just leave your everything. past and leave your future. Leave your past and leave your future behind. That's what Abraham is called to do. And I, I just want to uh, maybe make a broader. Um, isagogical comment here that this really is not only the peak of Old Testament literature, it's obviously also the peak of Abraham's faith life. And we'll talk more about that later. And you can easily see that in the text. You can see at the end of Genesis chapter 22, you do get a genealogy. This is wrapping things, wrapping up Abraham's life. Um, and then the rest of the Abraham stories are wrapping up loose ends in Abraham's life. One of them is going to be Sarah. And we'll talk about the death of Sarah. And then the other one is going to be, well, now you got to hand off the patriarchy. you got to hand it all off, the promise to Isaac. And that's Genesis 24 um, in the marriage of Isaac so that the line can continue. And so here we have really the peak of Abraham's faith life. And now I'm back into verse 3. Early the next morning, <laughs> all of this, <laughs> you know, come on. Uh, he doesn't wait at all. It's early the next morning. Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about on the third. I, you know, this is like, I, I, this, this is maybe a horrific comparison, but the this scene, you, you get this little scene where we watch Abraham <laughs> cut wood. And, you know, come on. You know, like, in, 
Hebrew narrative is notoriously uh, simple and barren of details, which means that every time you do get a detail, it's super significant. Why in the world are do we watch Abraham go out and turn into a lumberjack? Why? Um, this is because it's foreshadowing. This is a very violent act. You know, cutting wood is actually, this. it's a very violent act. It takes a lot of force. Um, and this kind of narrative foreshadowing is very, very powerful. You know, they do this in movies all the time, right? Well, I, I it, this, this whole ver like verse three is what you're moving into right now. Early the next morning, like this is, I, I kind of read that like he didn't, he's immediately obedient, but it's more than that. Like he, he's, he's not sleeping well, like he's, there's no sleeping in for him. And, um, it, he also, it, this is so interesting. Like we, we saw him beg and plead and get on his knees for Sodom and Gomorrah. And then when God says, go and kill your own only son, Abraham gets up early in the morning and starts to prepare to do it. Like there's no begging, there's no pleading, there's no interceding not for Isaac. I mean, there's so many questions here, but what we see is, is, is like immediate obedience, but it's also very ominous. Like, um, Abraham becomes an absolute Paul Bunyan, you know, <laughs> like he, I've chopped wood before Jonathan. I know you have too. And he got the splitter and everything and he's out there and he's just going at it. Like he is, he's going at it. I, I think that was, part of his way of dealing with it and thinking it through. And then he's, he's on his way um, for, for three days, like, which, which means like the next verse goes like this on the next day, on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there, we will worship. And then we'll come back to you. Like, I think the whole what this is meant to evoke is that Abraham is 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 he's wrestling with this, and um, the exegetes and the scholars have called this just an exquisite silence. Like it is, it is just a deafening, oppressive, poignant, elegant, sensational silence where um, nobody says a word, at least that we know of, until three days later. So he's got to, he's thinking this through, like who, and rightly so, like, think about, think about everything that God had asked him to do. He's like, take your son, the one I promised you, by the way, the one that you love and kill him, put a knife him. Like, this is a violation. This is a violation of fatherly love. This is a violation of um, God's own um, conscience that he places in us not to murder this is this is a violation of everything that that abraham had come to believe that god is and, and was and um he he's he's got to wrestle with that like how does he make sense of this morally um how does it make sense theologically and so in his in his heart I, I imagine all of these things are are going around and he's like god are you a monster like how why why should i do this what what is it you're trying to show me god 
Um, and how does the, the doctrine of the revel uh, resurrection play in here? Like this is a big moment and it's all like screaming underneath the details. Like that's what I see there. Yeah, and it calls it calls to each of us to enter into this. And like, so he goes out and cuts wood. And you know, you help me imagine that. Like, what's he doing? Like, what's he doing cutting wood? You know, how's he bringing down that axe? And why is he bringing down that axe? And he could have had somebody else do that. He goes out and does it himself. But then he says, he says in verse five, and I want to point this out because this is going to come come up significant as we make some applications of the story. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. So on the, on the, on the front end of this, we learn what Abraham's resolution is. And, and, and I heard one, one pastor talk about this and I thought it was helpful. Like, what are you going to do when you're not, when you're in a trial, when you're being tempted and stuff like that, what are you going to do? How about your worship? It's a way of, form, you know, framing the issue for us. Uh, we can worship um, when we're going through something this difficult. But on the back half of this, you'll notice that Abraham actually makes a statement of faith. <laughs> he, sometimes I think we look at the New Testament and we think, the, that these New Testament writers are just make you know the, the Holy Spirit's given them something that's not that's not in the text at all. But in but in Hebrews, where the writer talks about that that Abraham's imagining that that Isaac is coming back from the dead, um, it's actually right here in the text. He says, "We will worship, and then we will come back to you." So Abraham is sharing his confidence there that uh, Isaac's coming back. Isaac's coming back. <laughs> Isaac's coming back. <laughs> it's sitting right there. Somehow, the somehow, somehow. Right. Either that, either that, or you have to read Abraham down there and say he's he's telling a little bit of a wishy-washy story that he himself doesn't even believe. You know, it's yeah. It's he's hard. just he just he's telling he's fabricating it. He's he's telling um, what he needs to say. So it you know it's it's hard to it's hard to say you know what what he's trying to say. It could be you could read him up that way and and get that. Um, but the, no matter what way you read it, like this is a very um, poignant a poignant moment. And then it's as, almost as if like. This is so such a sensitive, really sensational story, because what happens next is, is this is what we're told. We get this um, such a tender conversation on the way up the mountain. It says Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. Actually, I want to just talk about that for a second. That even those details, like <laughs> even th this is this is why this is such a um, mountaintop story, the peak of ancient narrative. Like we, like we said, like even those details. He took the wood for the burnt offering, so he puts it on Isaac, the wood, and then 
he takes the dangerous stuff for himself. Like he he is he is um, protecting Isaac on the way up the mountain. Yeah, he doesn't let you him know, have the fire and the knife. You don't. He, I don't give my my daughters the knife either, right? So he's got the dangerous stuff, and and that's going to play out a little bit more as the dialogue happens next. Like, there's no way he's going to let Isaac accidentally fall on this on the knife. And by the way, the um, there there this isn't the normal Hebrew word for knife. Um, some scholars actually believe that this is more like a meat cleaver, like one of those, like a butcher that, that you just kind of slam down on a table to lop off a leg or a head or something like that, which kind of adds to the, if that's what this is, and it it may be a meat cleaver um, instead of like a, a a table knife or something like that, that is, that's, that's significant. So he's got this, um this cutting um knife cleaver thing and this is what happens next as the two of them went on together isaac spoke up and said to his father abraham father yes my son abraham replied the fire and the wood are here isaac said but where is the lamb for the burnt offering abraham answered god himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering and the two of them went on together so there's this mm. isaac whew, it's 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 i get there's a lot of things i want to notice but first of all isaac is unwilling to mention the cleaver or the knife he can't talk about it fire like the it, wood are here and a knife. <laughs> so it's it, he almost so is in, intuiting like that there's something wrong in this situation. He knows it. And then he he says it out loud. He doesn't want to talk about the violence that's that's possible. And um it and then the other thing that that's that's noticeable here and is just the 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 uh, the emotional quality of the exchange, um, the relational quality like these the, uh, Abraham and Isaac were um had a beautiful father and and son relationship and you can you can see that in the way that they dress each other so respectfully and so lovingly and and Abraham can't bring himself to tell Isaac what he uh what God's told him to do like he he for the moment he hides that from his son and in an expression of faith, he 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 says God's gonna provide the um the sacrificial lamb, and then the silence um ensues again. The silence ensues. I don't know if you wanted to add on to that, Jonathan, at all. Like this is it's just a gripping scene. Such a gripping scene. And and that is that's the structure of the story. You, you do the the narrative provides the framework, but actually the dialogue in the story is what is where the story really, really does come home. You get these, these moments that are just full of pathos and, and love and um, tension that a knife can cut in so many different ways. And um, the two of them went on together and 
I can only say at this point, uh, before we read the next verses, that both of these, both of these men then, um, together in faith, uh, end up. Well, we're going to see. We're going to see. Isaac um, moves forward in faith too. Yeah, and I think I think it's important to say that, like, oh, uh, it's it's difficult to like it's pin a peak down. of Isaac's life too. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's difficult to pin down exactly how old Isaac was here, but he's old enough to have an intelligent conversation like we just witnessed. Um, and a lot of people don't imagine him to be like an eight year old. Like I most people imagine him to be like late teens and early twenties, which means that um, Abraham wasn't, he's an, he's a Paul Bunyan, like the physicality that we have witnessed in these chapters of, of Abraham is significant. Like here he's chopping wood. We saw him earlier. Um, he was able to chop in half a heifer, <laughs> which yeah. is a, a, a significant, I mean, I think that would wear me out, Jonathan. I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't even know where to start to get a heifer in half. But so Abraham's a little, a bit of a beast. But um, <laughs> a lot of people think that Isaac was old enough to at least be able to resist and run away. And he doesn't. The other thing that I think is important to, or at least interesting to discuss is that, um, Soren Kierkegaard, I think, does best with this. There's so many questions in this story. I, I read, he, he wrote a, 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 a philosophical work called Fear and Trembling that goes on for like 600 pages, just on this one account, just on this account. It's an incredible um, read. I just, I, I made a lowly and pitiful start into it. But he actually reimagines the story like this. And I, I think it's helpful to, for reflecting on the story where he imagines the scene a little bit differently where a man, Abraham actually lets him in on, on the plan. And Abraham says to, to him, um, I'm going to kill you, son. And we then the scene changes quite a bit where Isaac actually pleads for his life and um, Isaac actually begins to pray to God to rescue him from his crazy father. And then this is these are the words that um, Kierkegaard puts into Abraham's mouth. He's, Abraham prays as well and says, Lord in heaven, I thank you. It is after all better that he believes me to be a monster than he should lose faith in you. So he was concerned about the faith life of his son. If, if Isaac would have found out that God had said kill, uh, ki <laughs> that he, he needed to be killed, like what does that do to the faith life of, of Isaac? And, there, and there's so many, uh, you know, some of this is speculation. Um, how did this all end up impacting Isaac? Uh, it, it's very interesting in the track, the rest of his life, how passive he becomes doesn't even like he's the 40 year old man still not married. Abraham has to go out and get him a wife. Um, 
he becomes really a bit player in his own family and his his twin boys start to run over him and and his wife as well so you have to you have to wonder you know like what how how did this event impact Isaac and was it positive or was it negative for for his faith life um and and also how it impacted Abraham as well and we're going to we'll unpack that um a little bit later but whew, I've said a lot right there it's uh so many questions as we read the story should we keep reading yeah i want to keep reading get to the peak and then i have some commentary i want to break into myself when so now i'm in verse nine when they reached the place god had told them about abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it he bound there's the akadah he bound his son isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood so many so many details we just see this here's here's moses the cinematographer less uh, less narrator more cinematographer then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son but the angel of the lord called out to him from heaven abraham abraham here i am he replied so i want to i want to stop right there <laughs> and and move move into that for a second and it's you can, we'll talk about the emotional tension and all that uh in just a minute i want to i want to pause right here and and just reflect for a second i think there's two ways that we can go at this story um on its spirit in a spiritually unhelpful way one would be that we become distracted from this moment we become distracted from this moment so i want to talk about that for a second um, there's a a little um midrash uh, a midrash is a little um basically it's the ancient jewish commentary on on the bible and there's a very famous midrash um on genesis chapter 22 an explanation of sorts of Genesis chapter 22 and it's called the midrash of the of the white ram and it's a it's it's actually it's a made-up story but it's a beautiful little story with um huge christological um a huge christological slant to it but at any rate it's a story about about the ram that shows up in the story and uh, in the story, the story goes like this, that, that God made the ram on the last day of creation. And then he said to the ram, wait here. And the, the ram has to wait in the Garden of Eden. And everything else has to leave the Garden of Eden. <laughs> so Adam and Eve disobey God. This is how the Midrash goes. Um, and all the rest of the Animals have to leave, but the ram just waits there, and he waits, 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 until God finally told him, the time is now. And then all of a sudden, this ram, who had been kept there since the beginning of creation, begins to run. And all of a sudden, the evil one shows up, and the evil one says, stop, don't leave the garden. If you leave the garden, you're going to die. And the ram says, I must save the child. And he starts running. 
And he runs, he runs, and the evil one tries to stop, and the evil one tries to stop, and it goes like this, and it's and it really is a beautiful little story that's uh, probably worth reading. But then, finally, uh, the the evil one tries one last time. The ram had been going, trying to run faster and faster, and and finally, um, at the top, um, uh, what happens is the uh, ram finally gets to the sacred mountain, and at the top. He sees the child tied and bound on the altar, and he sees a weeping man. And the ram cries out, wait, and he runs even faster. And he says, I am here, take me. But the evil one, disguised as a bush of brambles, caught the ram's horns and said, you shall go no farther. And the ram struggled and cried, Abraham, I am here, take me. But Abraham didn't hear. And that's the, that's the little midrash, and it's it's a beautiful little story. And I've got no problem. I got no problem with people imagining things. What I want to say about it is where I started that we don't want to become distracted, and I think this is a distraction. Uh, it is very very difficult for us to, for us to keep our eyes on the scene of Abraham with a knife to the throat. Of his own son and we so we tell these cute little these beautiful little stories um, about a ram so that we don't have to look at abraham and there's other ways we can be distracted with it too um the other way we can do it timothy is here's another i think one way we can do it is we can get distracted from the story we get involved with other things the other thing that we can do is rationalize it and this is what you see in the philosophers and the theologians. Instead of actually entering into the story, they do apologetics about it. Oh, God would never. Oh, God meant this. Oh, God meant that. And they have all of these explanations and they rationalize it. I even heard um, one psychologist rationalize this. Thing. This is a story about sacrifice. God is trying to teach us to sacrifice. This is this is a this is if, if this is what we have to do. We have to learn to delay things so we can have rewards later. We need to learn to put things on the altar so that, you know, like our way, we, we don't eat, we sacrifice some of what we're going to eat in the holiday season or whatever, so that we don't, so that we can have health later or something like that. And they, and they rationalize this and they, and they actually stop themselves from entering into the difficulty of the story, which is that God is asking Abraham to do something um, that he can't understand, um, that, that God is actually showing up and he appears as a monster. And Abraham is here trusting God through it. As one theologian said, what Abraham has to do here is he has to believe God against God. The only way that I can get at this story is in my own experience. My wife, I, I I've said this before, I have two um, brand new little boys in my life, and I hold them every night now. <laughs> and my wife asked me actually just this morning, she said, they're newborns. And she said, are you, are you, not that I wasn't feeling emotionally connected, but she, she was talking about how she's become more connected to the boys, like every day, like she's spending time with them, getting to know them and things like that. And she asked if I was having the same experience. And I had to think about that for a second. Because on the one hand, you know, I, I, I love those boys the minute 
the minute I heard about him, the the minute I laid hands on him for the first time, I loved him. And and um, there's a sense in which it was complete and full, but I, I love him more every day too. And that's sort of the mystery of the capacity of love that the Holy Spirit puts inside of his people. Um, we love more and more and more. And I I was forced as a, as a father to boys, you know, I can stand apart from it a little bit being a father of a daughter because it's not a perfect parallel, but as a father to a, to a boy for the first time in my life, I have to stare this in the face and think about, could I do it? And you, and you have to, you know, the way, I, I just want to notice the way that the story proceeds, like, really, we, we spent quite a bit of time unpacking the first three days of the story. It's, but the pace of the story is, is we might call it breathless. Others have. It's, it's very, we get to the moment of the raised hand very quickly, actually, with, with very little dialogue. And we cover a lot of ground really, really fast. But then we get to this moment where everything slows down. And the only other moment in scripture, at least in the Old Testament, that that compares to it in terms of its um, the way that it pans the scene and slows everything down would be um, that moment in David and Goliath where we see David slinging the stone. And then we're told that it, it literally sinks into the head of Goliath. Like we get such incredible details and, and everything slows down and and that's exactly what we have here like every this is like millisecond by millisecond and the hand is coming up um caravaggio's painting of this is it, it provoked me it provoked me because a lot of people picture um the if, if it's a cleaver or, or a knife, you know, pick one. But a lot of people think it, you plunge it into their heart. That's 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 not the way that you would have done this, actually. It's not the way that you would have done this. You actually would have bled them out first. That was the normal procedure for a sacrificial act. You have to bleed them out first. And then you, you got them, and then you put the meat up. So I think Caravaggio's right that he would have had to slit his own son's throat. And that's that's really what we have um, right here in plain Hebrew in, in, in front of us. And we're asked to kind of we're at, we're asked to sit with that for a moment that um, and then at the last possible moment, if if we could if we could actually move on with the story, Jonathan, and and just keep reading. Um, I'm going to pick it up with verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. So this double really emotive um, repetition of his name. Here I am. He replied, do not lay a hand on the boy. He said, do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. By the way, that, that means Jaira, Jaira. Uh, and to this day, it is said, 
on the mountain of the Lord, it will be, it will be provided. So in, in just in the nick of time, God provides a ram. There is a, a, a vicarious substitution that takes place. And Abraham's faith in the process wins a great, great, great victory. And that's the story. You want to move into any of those final details, Jonathan? I, I don't think so. I, I think it's uh, the only thing I would say is to our, our listeners is spend time in the story, um, reliving it. Um, don't do it. Do it in this way. Uh, a couple suggestions. One would be do it with knowledge. So verse one is actually a spoiler alert. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. <laughs> we know, we know what's going on in the story. Remember, Abraham didn't. He didn't. He didn't know. He did not know that this was a test. <laughs> he couldn't. He couldn't have. Um, we do. So the, in other words, what I'm trying to say is, as we experience the story, Moses doesn't want us to experience the story as scary. You know, we, we actually know that it's going to turn out just fine because God is, God is doing something here. Uh, Abraham has no such resolution, uh, but we do. And so when we go into the story, the tension is not, is it going to turn out well? God has his hands on this. We know this. Uh, the tension here is, what's Abraham going to do? Is he going to be able to survive this fire? Is he going to come out the other side of this okay? Uh, and so we watch Abraham wondering, is he going to make it past? Uh, and then he does. Uh, so we can experience the story that way, not not. How, how does how is Abraham going to move through all of this emotional difficulty? I do think, um, Timothy, you and I have, have been trying to be evocative more in this in this podcast than we have been. Probably um, theological or um, rationalistic or something like that, and that's that's on purpose. That's exactly. Um, how how the narrative reads. We don't get massive theological statements here. We get a lot of evocation and an image and 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 discourse and and, and dialogue. And I, I think that that's the right way to go about this. Um, you can look at Caravaggio's painting. Um, you can also Google um, the sacrifice of Isaac and you'll find other images that I think are really powerful to contemplate. Like for example, in Florence, there's a couple reliefs um, that you can look at side by side of the sacrifice of Isaac by a couple of very famous um, workers in bronze. And there you can see different ways that artists have depicted this. And, and uh, it's powerful to think about how this might've have gone. It's another way, like one of the artists has Abraham being very aggressive, he's like almost like leaning into it, and then um, and then the angel of the Lord like grabs him and, and and stops him. And in another one, Abraham is is um, almost pictured uh, beautifully in um, sort of ancient 
terms where there's there's light and there's proportion, there's integrity to the image. And uh, those are helpful ways to enter into um, what's going on here. I think I think what we have to do next and and maybe what what we all um, end up asking ourselves like, okay, I read the story. what is it? What does it mean in general, but more specifically, what, what is it what it what does it mean for me? And I think I think we have to come at that question, Jonathan, with a lot of humility. And but I do think that we can make a really good start into the beginning of an answer. <laughs> and I think there's three three main ways that that we can walk away with um, with some wins for ourselves, some wins. And and the first one, the first two, really the first, actually all three. Let's just do that. Really flow from the scriptures. So the first one I think that we can talk about is how we have to, like, I think it was David Buttrick who said this that that we need to maybe reset or rebuild who we think God is. And we we need to, in a sense, um, paint God with different colors. Like so often we um, we think of God as someone who's cuddly. And we have these images of God. Our favorite one is, of, of course, Jesus, the the shepherd. And he's just, he's just so gentle. And, and that's true about God, but it's not the, the only thing that's true about God. Sometimes God will put the, a knife or a cleaver into the hand of a father and say, kill your child. And so what that does is it impacts, it's meant to impact and purify our faith. And the, and and the scriptures talk about that. The scriptures talk about that. So um, this is uh this is from First Peter and all this. And by the way, this is this is the way that the story frames the the story frames as a test of faith, as a as a way of getting the dross out of your faith, as a, as a way of understanding just a little bit better who God is, and to paint Him with those darker colors sometimes that. To, to help us understand that sometimes God can be a, appear to be a monster. Like sometimes God is, um, we, we like to think that God, or we say God is good all the time, but he doesn't always appear to be good. And so this is, this is a test, not a temptation, but a test. And this is what Peter says about tests. He says, in all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So a thing like this, and when your faith rises up and says, like Abram said, this is from Hebrews, and says, even though God appears to be a monster, even though I'm about to turn my own son into ashes, 
I believe that God will raise him up like a phoenix. When your faith does that, it proves its genuineness to the glory of Jesus Christ. It is, it is tested and proven and purified. It gets rid of the dross. And there's, there's so much more that we could say about this, but this is one of the purposes of tests. And it is a takeaway from the story. Yeah, and Timothy, I, I want to just point out to our listeners that you are saying something more than that faith, Abraham's faith is revealed. It's, it's proven. And the, the, so there's two levels. Like if, if you look at the text in Genesis chapter 22, you, you don't get a lot of interpretation of the story. As far as I can tell, you only get two verses of that. And that would be verse one. We know it's a test. And so that's, that's in the first way that we can interpret the story. But then we see the Lord himself um, interpreting the story, and that's in verse 12. He says, do not lay a hand on the boy. Uh, do not do anything to him. Now I know. So here it is. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And so I want to I talk about this is anthropomorphic language. God is talking about about knowing here, and I, I, I want to make um, a bit of a distinction. Uh, God, God, obviously, we like we say in systematic theology, God has foreknowledge. Like um, in the Midrash, the Midrash talks about this, um, imagines a, this conversation that Abraham has with the Lord. Um, and Abraham said, but Lord, why did you have to test me? You know all things. You knew that I would do anything you asked, even give you my only son. And then the Midrash imagines the Lord saying, I knew, but I wanted the whole world to see your love and your trust in me so that all people might follow your example. So, um, so here, um, the Midrash is thinking that what's going on here is that God is just revealing what he already knew to the entire world through the story. But that's not what the text says. It's, it actually says in verse 12, now I know that you fear God. It doesn't, it doesn't say now the whole world knows that you fear God. It says now I know. And so, you know, don't. what I want to say is don't get too caught up in the systematic theology that says God has foreknowledge. Of course God has foreknowledge. But we're speaking anthropomorphically here. What's going on? And what's going on? So I can speak humanly. Let's talk in the human terms because we're talking, even the holy writers talking in human terms. I can know that my wife wants to marry me when I'm engaged, you know, if I'm engaged or she's my fiance. But on the wedding day, and after after she's made her promises to me, I can say, now I know, now I know that you want to marry me. So I can trust it beforehand and I can know it beforehand, but that there's actually a different kind of knowing that comes from experience. So, so God in that moment is, is knowing not just by foreknowledge, but by experience, like he's experiencing um, the, faith, the faith of Abraham and the fear of Abraham in him. So God is revealed, like faith is revealed, but Timothy, you said something more. Yeah, and I, I guess I, I 
I want to just, we're going to have a lot of clarifying statements here. It, it's important as, as you look at this text and like a, 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 you, a, what we're really trying to suss out is like, what's the purpose of testing? There's two sides to that coin, isn't there? There's the human side, the Abraham side, the believer side that it's proven, your faith is proven genuine. It is, it is, it's purified of the dross. Like you're able to know better who God is for you. And that happens for Abraham, but that's not the comment that we get. Like you said, the, the other side of the coin is that it does something for God. That's, that's what the text says. And that's actually what God emphasizes here. And what it does is it brings joy. And this is so interesting. It brings joy to God's heart to know experientially, like you said, that um, you, you'll, your faith will rise up to, to the test that, that he gives. And the, 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 the three words that say, now I know, those are words that show up all over the Old Testament. And they always come on a human mouth. Like, I'm trying to think of examples. This may not have, I'd have to go back and look actually, but they always happen after a believer goes through a test and then God comes through miraculously. Like say, um, God raises someone from the dead through Elijah. And then somebody said, now I know, now I know. And this is what happens throughout the scriptures. This is the only time, actually, in all of Holy Scripture where God watches a believer and his faith rising up to believe in the resurrection of the dead. And then God says, in great joy, <laughs> now I know, <laughs> see, now I know that um, uh, you, you fear God. And that, that, that little piece about fearing God, like, that's the whole that's the whole kit and caboodle. Like that's that's what God wanted to shape and form and grow in, in, in Abraham's life. And it's to his great joy that now Abraham's faith was proven genuine, that it rose up to the test. Yeah, so th there is that, that God side, now I know. And, and God glories in that, so to speak, this, this faith that, that Abraham has in him but then on the other side is abraham is proven and some of the you know there's three categories we're trying to develop right now the, the first here is we have this this purification of faith but attached to that is the idea of idolatry now some people i think uh, possibly i'm being very guarded in my language here because the, sto the story leaves it open i think um but some people are going to do a huge rant on idolatry here. Um, and, you know, that Abraham was at great risk for over loving his son or something like that. And so, you know, the Lord is asking him to, to put Isaac on the altar, uh, not just metaphorically, but physically and spirit, uh, spiritually as well, and lay him down to God. And so... Uh, that's that's the second category that that we can explore um that's i think really important that uh, you do see in verse two you get that language take your son your only son whom you love um and and here like 
just to unpack this for a second, it's okay, take your son. Fair enough. It's, it's your child, it's your offspring. And then there's some tension in that. But then the Lord amps it up, says your only son. And of course, here, um, it, it wouldn't, it's not being sassy to point out that Abraham does have another son. It, his name's Ishmael. Uh, but he's not, he's not the heir. He's not the guy. He, he had to be sent away. So when he's, this is, this is not the Lord, you know, not knowing Abraham's own biological history or something like that. Ishmael does, does exist, but he's talking as far as, uh, legally, um, and, and, and biologically from him and Sarah, this is the only one he, he does hold that significance. Um, in his life. Um, and then he's the delight. He's, he's, the, he's the love of, of Abraham's heart. And it, it, there you do have um, at least a little direction for, for us to think about what are the things that are only's in our lives, um, loves in our lives, uh, that, that can become too important in our lives, that uh, we base all of our hope and all of our future on uh, like like Abraham was told to do with with Isaac, was he at risk of overloving him and overloving over trusting him? Well, I I think there's scriptural reasons to kind of beat ourselves down this path a little bit and talk about idolatry and 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 obedience. We we kind of talked about a lot about the faith application, but there is an obedience. Um, application here. And, and James really gives us good reason to talk this way. Listen to what James says. It's James 2, verse 21. Was our, not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? So there's a, Abraham was a, obedient uh, to God, and when God said um, sacrifice, and He went and did it, uh, and He was certainly Isaac was already dead in his heart, only to live again, and and God only stopped it from happening physically. And um, just to put a little flesh and bones on on you know what might this mean for us? There's a part of me, and I don't I don't mean to be harsh. But there's a part of me that thinks that it's not just the only in our lives. We won't even give sometimes just a little bit to God and put it on his altar. Like in, in Christian churches, the, there's there's so much symbolism in in um, we put our offerings in a plate and then they go up and sit on the altar. And And sometimes, you know, we put a whole lot less than our precious boy. If we can put it in stark relief, or um, we can't even give up part of our Sunday to hear His Word. Um, be, and you know, sometimes I, I have people tell me like, "Oh, Pastor, I think God will understand if I miss church." And you know, I don't want to be a legalist or anything like that, but because um, people are wanting to work or whatever. But really, you're you're making a straight up choice not to risk your economic future for a few hours uh, for the sake of your eternal future and your relationship with God. 
when you when you choose not to be involved in his word. And I know it doesn't necessarily need to happen on Sunday, but if it's not going to happen on Sunday, when will it? What I'm trying to suss out is, I I really believe this, Jonathan, that we're not even willing to put on God's altar even little things. And I I think I I say that to my own shame and and to um, our lack of obedience. There's a powerful preaching of the law here for us, if we are to use Abraham as example. Yeah, and we we need to get to we need to get to Christ, and that's where we're going to end in this story. But I want to move into James just a little bit further. James says about this event in Abraham's life. Um, I'm going to quote it here. This is James chapter two, verse twenty-two, that his faith was made complete by what he did. So his faith was made complete by what he did. So here, here Abraham uh, lays his obedience, his son, on the altar, and his faith is able to see just how uh, faithful God is um, to him, and his faith is made complete. And uh, on the one hand, there's a great... There's a great conviction that can come in our hearts when we see how little we're willing to lay on the altar. And on the other hand, and I want to, we can empower this with Christ in just a second. There's an incredible opportunity for us that that when we do trust God, um, in the, like God, I'm going to lay down what I think is my economic future. God, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to lay down what I think is my my child's athletic future. I'm, God, I'm going to lay I'm I'm going to lay I'm going to lay down my sexuality. Um, in this life, if I start with that, I mean, you know, if I lay down all these things that are so important to me, uh, when we do that, our faith can be made complete because we're going to see God rise up and keep his promise to us. There is an incredible opportunity here. You know, what, what if you do, what if we do come to church and we lay down an economic opportunity and then, and then guess what? The Lord provides. And we see that. Always in the nick of time. That's or, the whole or we, story. <laughs> or we take, you know, we say, you know what, I'm not going to put my kid in every, in, in absolutely every little thing. I'm going to make sure I, I raise my kid up in the alarm and lay that down. Um, and then we, we watch our kid grow up to be a powerful Christian in the world. Like, woo! <laughs> Yeah, and I guess what what happens then is what you thought was a sacrifice turns into a blessing for you, <laughs> right? It, everything gets turned turned on its head. Then uh, there's one last thing I wanted to talk about, Jonathan here, and th- this is I think I think I need to start into it in this way. We need to talk about hermeneutics for a second because. And which is the that is a study of biblical interpretation, and there is a very um, conservative, I'd say, and I think careful approach to hermeneutics that says uh, that unless the New Testament specifically says it, that 
the Old Testament does not contain types of Christ. In other words, we got we have to have a New Testament reference to verify um, that when we're reading the Old Testament that it, it refers to um, to Christ. And so there's a school of thought that would look at it, look at a text like this from Genesis chapter two and be unwilling to say that this has much of anything to say about who Jesus is. Okay. So I want to admit that, but, uh, uh, I, I want to, I want to see if we can get, uh, one theologian says that in, for good hermeneutics to take place, what you need is to get some sort of theological momentum. I like that word. So I want to see if we can get some some theological momentum for seeing Christ in this story. Hey, can and, I interrupt you just for a second? Okay. I, yeah, go ahead. I, I don't think it's I don't think it's not everybody I, thinks it's for sure that the New Testament doesn't reference this story. Or uh, see Christ. Fill me in, in on that. I, I uh, there's aware. a theologian <laughs> named Ross that thinks that um, the Apostle Paul is alluding to this in Romans 8, verse 32, which says, He do not he who did not spare his own oh, son. Oh, spare his own son. Right. Yeah. He who did not spare mm. his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not? Like, what's Abram not gonna what's Abraham not gonna give God now? Exactly. And so uh there I, I haven't done enough of the research on this, but I know that Ross is somebody who is gonna connect this up to the to the Abraham story and see Christ in it. And then he thinks I, Paul is doing that here. I, I've got it. I'm just saying I've got at least one book at my shelf that would say, don't you dare see Christ here because it's not in the New Testament. Like maybe they won't say it like that dramatically, but that's basically what they say. But I want to see and just let our listeners be the judge and see if we can get some feel hermeneutical momentum here. For, for reading this story, um, not only as, as a, a, a faith test and as a story about obedience, because the scriptures go to, into both of those places, but also as a type of Christ. And so I want to I want to just get just point out some of the some of the really provocative details that 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 maybe give us maybe we can be like a, a car that it's got no gas in the car and and. You just let's see if we can give it a little push. You Timothy, know? nobody pops uh, clutches anymore. <laughs> <laughs> all right, but look at first. First of all, so I'm gonna let's see if we can get some momentum for this. First of all, verse two, um, he's he's called to go to the region of Moriah. Now, you know, I I'm no geographical genius. I'm I'm not a. a historical um, geographical scholar but from all the reading that i've done mount moriah <laughs> get this mount moriah is drum roll please jerusalem <laughs> this 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 is the same place where christ died like this is where the jews believe that the, the, that the world was created like this is this is Mount Moriah. <laughs> that to me is is a detail that um, it just kind of sort of blows my mind. And if if it wasn't there, 
I could be like, yeah, maybe it's not about Christ. But so let's keep going. Let's keep going. Okay. Second of all, God says, go to Mount Moriah and make a sacrifice. <laughs> like he could have, he could have tested Abraham in so many different ways at so many different places. But what he says to do is go make a blood sacrifice, okay, at Jerusalem, <laughs> at Mount Zion. Uh, let's let's keep going. The sacrifice is compared to a lamb. Isaac asks about a lamb. Third thing, this is about a father sacrificing a son. So we got relational uh, details here. Then we have the sacrifice almost happening. It doesn't happen. But what does happen is a vicarious substitution of a ram. Um, and and we could we could keep going, but um, I'm not alone. Like I there, there's so much momentum to read the story as a type of Christ that it is by, far and away, far and away. If you look at ancient Christian interpretation, hermeneutics of the story, far and away. What Christians always see is Christ. They see a father making a costly sacrifice for terrible sin on the mountain. A precious son, an only son. Do I need to keep going on? <laughs> You didn't even talk. I don't even think maybe I missed it, Timothy. Is but there you more didn't talk momentum? about carrying the wood? You didn't talk about that. Both sons carry the wood. You didn't talk about the painful questions of the sons to the father. You didn't talk about how they both lost all hope at the uh, you know at the end, um, and that there's there's both there's there's a type of resurrection in this account, and then there's there's a real resurrection that mounts up later. I mean, well, there you, you go. There's more more momentum. Third day, you know, third day, yeah. all, all, all that, all that stuff. You know, I, let me let, let me put it like that. Like, get past like the hermeneutics and all of the um, theological jargon, and be a you know, like just be a simple Christian. I dare you, I dare anybody to read this story and not think about Jesus Christ our Lord. I just, I just dare you. If you can, if you can do that, oh man. Well, okay, so we, we have to go, we have to take this a little further, because by the way, he, the pre-incarnate Christ, like the second person of the Trinity is in the story. Yeah, he's, he's actually, actually here. here. He's here. Pointing and, and to what, this ramp. What, right. what he's, right. And so it, let, let's just look at that again. Um, he he says, don't lay, lay hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. This is, It says the angel of the Lord. Um, now I know. So he's uh, completely identified himself with God. Um, and, and so he's saying, don't do it. And we hear him later in the New Testament saying, I'll do it. If we could put it like that. I'll, I'll do it. 
I wouldn't do it. And he does do it. He makes the sacrifice. And the Lord does provide on the mountain. He is Jireh. So beautiful.